If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 today. I've entitled today's message, Men and Women in Church. Men and Women in Church. Let me say on the front side of this, this is a controversial passage. This is a difficult passage, some of it to even understand. I pray God will help us to see and get some insight, but I pray also God will give us hearts to receive it. Some of it's controversial because we're not sure exactly the meaning of the passage in some portions, and some of it is controversial just because it's hard to receive. It's not, it's not in step with the contemporary thinking and culture of our time. But it is very relevant. In fact, I would sub submit to you that the Bible is the most relevant book you could possibly read and study. Consider the things that the Bible speaks authoritatively on. It speaks about origins. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Why are we here? The Bible speaks to that. The Bible speaks about morality, about truth, religion, family, gender, sexuality, marriage, money, government, future, eternity. It speaks of God. It speaks of man. It speaks of sin, forgiveness, redemption. It speaks of Jesus Christ. All of these topics are relevant. All of these topics are very important to us living our lives even today in modern culture. Now, the Bible is very, very relevant, but let me say the Bible is not always compliant. It is not always in step with the narrative of the modern culture, the trends of contemporary thinking. And so some would say, oh, the Bible's not relevant. Oh, the Bible's relevant. You just don't like what it's saying. It's not consistent, compliant with what you think it should be saying and that, for that reason, the Bible's claims are sometimes controversial. They are con in controversy with the course of the world, the spirit of the age. But this is why we're studying the Bible together. We want to find out what does God have to say about life, about truth. Specifically in 1 Timothy and the, and the books that we'll be looking at in the near future, we want to know what God has to say about church. Is church important? What should be taking place at church? Why should we gather as God's people? Is it important to God? Does he have rules of conduct for us? Has God organized things in the church? Does God have a plan for his church? That's the plan. That's the truth that we want to discover together. Oh, the world will offer a plan. Oh, yeah, the culture will tell us how church should be. But we need to know what God has to say. You remember this is kind of our anchor verse out of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. I remind you, Paul says this in his letter to Timothy, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Well, there it is. That's, I'm writing this so that you'll know. And the Holy Spirit inspiring the apostle to write rules, instruction for conduct in God's house, that we're to be entrusted with truth, that the church should be able to maintain the foundation of truth and to hold it up as a pillar of truth 
to the, to the current generation, to our culture. This is the place where God's truth should be represented and seen even in a, in a time when culture is blowing winds of doctrine all about. Things are changing. Ideas are changing. But we see that God's word becomes something of an anchor, something of a foundation for truth, even in the midst of changing times. Today's text, as I mentioned, it's controversial. Because we're going to see God laying out his order for the church and his instructions to the church as it relates to gender, men and women. As I said, some of it we'll have to wrestle with the understanding. Some of it we'll just have to make sure that our hearts are willing to receive it, even though it sounds like it's not in step with modern thinking. Let's look at it together. We'll read verses 8 through 15. And then we'll come back and try to take it verse by verse. But let's read the whole text in context, and then we'll come back through. Verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Wow. There it is. Ladies, aren't you glad you came today to hear God's plan for you in the church? You know, on the face of this, it almost sounds offensive, doesn't it? It almost sounds discriminatory. It almost sounds completely out of touch with our ideas of equality and, and you know, opportunity for all. This seems to be so old-fashioned, so kind of dated. But this is the Word of God. And we have to deal honestly with this and recognize that God has created even gender as an expression of His image. You remember this from Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, he created them. God has something of his image that is captured in both male and female. It's not all resident in the man nor in the woman, but in male and female, God has expressed his image, which means he has intention for the roles of gender. He has something that each is to be responsible in fulfilling God's call and purpose for their life. This is true individually. This is true corporately as a church. This is true even for men and women. And we know that God is not biased. We know that God does not discriminate. We know that God loves men and women. God loves the whole world. That Jesus came for all. So it's important to, to take what we know to be true about God and His love and His fairness 
and then interpret these passage, these passages which are difficult to understand. That's our, our, our goal this morning. It seems that the world's idea of equality does not allow for any diversity concerning gender role distinction. In other words, equality demands that men and women are all to be the same. And whatever a man's role might be, then it's, also, it's only fair and equal that a woman could have that same role. If a man can fight on the front lines of a military engagement, then so can a woman. And so we have a culture that, in, I think in right thinking, wants equality, but I think it is missing some of the beauty that God has designed in diversity. Because we need to understand that although in the world's mind, equality cannot allow for diversity and gender and distinction, but in God's intended purpose, there is no uh, threat to equality, even in diversity. We see that we should not confuse the diversity of our roles with value and importance and priority in the heart and mind of God. God himself is expressed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Godhead equal in every way and yet unique and diverse in their role as in salvation and in their work in the lives of men. The world resists this, but we must embrace God's plan. Listen, in the Word of God, it's clear. All are created equal. Remember this, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christ came for all. When you come to faith in Christ, you are adopted into relationship with him. Male, female, race, color, social background, none of that matters. In Christ, we are all equal in him. This is the truth. God may assign roles and responsibilities, but it has nothing to do with equality. We ought not to be afraid of diversity because we know that we are all of equal value in the Lord. Romans 5 and verse 9, the Apostle John seeing the, the church worshiping in heaven. Here's the song they're singing. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, God has come in Christ to save us all. Male, female, all of us are equal before the Lord. Romans 2 and verse 11 says, There is no partiality with God. God does not discriminate, but he does assign responsibility and roles and has orders of authority. It is not to be confused with God's love and our value with him. It's not about value or equality. It's about function. It's about order. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, let all things be done decently and in order. God has a certain order, a certain 
division of authority and responsibility designed into the local church. That word decently and in order could also be translated fitting and orderly, proper and in order. And I'd like to look at this text now. We'll look at it, break it up into kind of two main sections. Verses 8 through 10, we will see that which is to be decent. And verse 11 through 15, that which is to be in order. What is the proper, decent conduct for us, men and women in church? And then what is God's established order for us, according to Paul's letter to Timothy? We begin there back at at verse 8. Let's talk to the men. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Now, if you remember our study from a couple of weeks ago, the topic has in chapter 2 has been prayer. Remember, I desire that there be all types of prayer made for all men. And first of all, pray. We talked about that a couple of weeks back. So Paul is now transitioning. Okay, this is what I want going on in the church. I want there to be prayer. And now that I've established that, here's what I want to say to the men. Men, you need to be the leaders in the church concerning prayer. For I want, I desire, therefore, that the men may pray, pray. Men pray everywhere, every church, universal, throughout the age, that men should be leading and prayer and setting the example for spiritual life in the church. It is a universal call. It is a call for men to step up and lead the spiritual life at the local church. Women have a role. Women have a place. Women have much ministry. But men, you need to step up and lead the church in prayer. The spiritual life of the church is to be led by the men. It says lifting up holy hands. Now, this speaks of a a posture in prayer for sure. And there is an appropriate expression of raising of hands. In the Jewish culture, the Jewish men, they would. They would lift their hands when they prayed. It was a practice. And so Paul is bringing that into the New Testament, that it's okay to lift your hands. Now, you don't have to lift your hands to pray, but it's appropriate to engage with God in prayer. It's a symbolic meaning of worship and humility, sincerity and faith. In other words, men, come and pray sincerely passionately engage your heart, even lift your hands. Now, we have many different expressions of prayer in our culture. Sometimes we can kneel and pray. We see that in the Bible. Sometimes we just close our, bow our heads and fold our hands, close our eyes. All of that's appropriate for an expression of prayer. Or you can be praying while you're driving to work. Prayer is open to us at all times. But Paul is, I think, saying not only the posture of prayer, engage in sincere prayer, men, but he says that you would lift up holy hands, holy hands. I think he's speaking to men that are living godly lifestyle. Now, none of us are holy in and of our own self. We are only made holy through the relationship we have with Christ. His blood shed at Calvary for us cleanses us of our sin. And in in cleansing us, he makes us holy. He sets us apart for himself. And in that relationship, we are to be walking sincerely with him in lifestyle, set apart and committed to God. 
men not in hypocrisy, not living one way during the week and then another way in church. No, holy hands. Come lifting holy hands. Listen, real men, real leaders, real men of God, real men committed to the things of God, committed to sexual purity, committed to working hard to, to bless and provide for family, men who are looking to be examples in the workplace, men who are committed to wife, to family, to raising their home in the Lord, setting the pace, setting the spiritual example. And not just husbands and fathers, young men as well. Young men committed to God's calling on their lives. So many times I, I see this, this age gap. The young men are just still busy living their lives, coming in and out of church, but church is primarily kind of left to the rest of the folks. We need young men to engage. We need young men to step up into their leadership role. You are the next generation of leadership for the church of the living God. You need to embrace it today. There is a fire in young men. There is a passion in young men. There's a strength, an energy, a zeal that young men have, and they need to have it for the Lord. That same passion you, you chase life with, chase God with. Listen, some of us are getting older. Some of us are losing some of that energy and that strength just physically. We need young men to step up and live for God. All men, everywhere, lifting up holy hands, praying, engaging spiritually with the Lord. Husbands, fathers, are you loving your wife like Christ loved the church? Are you washing her with the water of the word as it instructs you in the book of Ephesians? Are you watching over and leading your home spiritually? Young men, are you looking for ways to serve and help and engage in your local church? Are you setting the example in prayer and worship, in service, in mission, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting? without wrath, without this coming in with conflict, without coming in with pride, without coming in competing, boasting. Listen, men, we have issue that way, don't we? We're, we're, we're kind of, we walk in sometimes like little roosters, you know, and uh, just proud. Maybe we just had a, a debate on the way to church with our wife, and, you know, we, 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 act, we come in, you know, hard-hearted, hard a kind of mad dog, everybody looking around. Yeah, I'm at church. Who are you? You know, I mean, listen, I see it, right? Some of you know who you are. Guys, listen, that's not, that, you're coming in with wrath. You're coming in with that man pride. Put it, check it at the door. Come in with a heart for God. Come in with the love of Christ. Can you see Jesus walking in like that? What's going on here? Hey, what's up? I just, now, listen, I know some of that's our culture and just our greeting. I don't want to demasculinize you guys. You guys can be men, but be real men. Be godly men. Not wrath, doubting, conflict, all this anger, upset, quarreling, entangled with distraction. Come in and engage and lead God's people, God's church. Men, praying everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Let's talk to the women, verse 9. 
In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Women are to come with a certain spiritual quality as they come to church. Now, ladies, the Scripture says, with modesty and propriety, that which is proper for the occasion. It does not mean out of fashion. It does not mean drab colors. It does not mean you don't make, put your makeup on and do your hair before church. It's not saying that there can be no attention to your... In fact, it's saying, no, pay a special attention, but in an appropriate way, in a godly way, modesty. So, in other words, you're not, it's not, you're not looking to be sexually seductive. You're not trying to be provocative. Some, maybe you're a single young lady. Listen, you don't want to solicit that kind of attention. Anybody that's interested in that, that's not a guy you want. You want to come in living for God, appropriately dressed for God, and, and often with good works displaying the truth of your heart. You know, we've taken a, a lot of um, mission trips to India over the years, and we have these crusades that we hold, and you know, thousands of people come out to these crusades uh, of the locals out in the, these village communities, and they come from all around, men and women. They come, and the gospel is preached for a week. And it's, uh, what they do in their culture, and this is just part of their culture, is that the men sit on one side. It's all under a big tent. The men sit on one side, and the women sit on another side. And it's an amazing sight, just, just the colors when you look at the men's side and you look at the women's side. I've got a picture of one of these crusades. I'm hoping you can see it. All right. You can see the men's side, right? Bunch of white shirts, and that's about it, right? Look at the women's side. Colors, and it's like a pageantry of colors and beauty. All of it modest, all of it appropriate, but you see just... <laughs> Even in the natural course of things, women are much more uh, just decorative in their dress and in their style. And I do not believe that Paul is saying to silence that. I think he's saying be appropriate with it. And listen, you know what's in your heart. You know if you're coming to, to attract the wrong kind of attention. You know if you're coming to show off and compete with somebody else. Oh, where'd you get that? Oh, I was hoping you'd ask. I, I picked this up, you know. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> but you know how it is. You can have the wrong motive. Listen, that's not how we gather. Paul's speaking to a culture where Ephesus, a very high fashionable culture, and there was a lot of this kind of worldly thinking coming into the fellowship. And he said, look, at men, you need to come in. The right, with the right heart, ladies, you need to also come in with good works, professing godliness. Paul said this, and I want to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. I think it captures a lot of what I'm sharing with you. Again, 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. All, and I want women to be modest in their appearance, 
They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things that they do. Focusing on the inner beauty. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 3 and verse 3. He says to the ladies, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. We're called as men to come with holy hands, lifestyles committed to God, ready to lead and set the pace. Ladies coming to be examples of godly women. Ladies, you have so much to offer the life of the church, so much influence that you bring to your family, to your husbands, to your children, so much that you bring to the life of the church just in your worship, your music, your singing. Oh, there's just so much that practically ladies and women bring to the life of a church in prayer, in hospitality, in spiritual encouragement, insight, prophecy, so much that men and women are called to bring to the life of the church, and men and women are instructed accordingly. Now let's go to the second half of this text, the more challenging part for sure. Let's talk about God's order for the church. Has God established certain order and authority for the leading of his church? Look again, verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and, do not, I do not, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, let's remember our setting. Paul is talking to Timothy about the public worship life as the congregation gathers in its church setting. In that setting, he's asking women call that, to come to learn, not to come and, and cause disruption. He says that they would learn in silence. That word would better be translated quietness. It does not mean that women cannot speak in church. Clearly, Paul has in other places where he encourages prayer. He encourages, come with a word, come with an exhortation. You can all prophesy, all of this. No, he's not talking about women not speaking in church. He's talking about not speaking while the Word of God is being taught. You come in silence and quiet without interruption or distraction. We could say the same to men. But specifically, Paul reminds the ladies, not only in their uh, attentiveness to learn, but also with submission. This means that there, there's a willingness to allow God to use the leadership, the pastoral leadership that he has established for the church to speak and minister to your life. You're not presuming. You're not striving for that authority. You're submitting to that authority. Listen, Women are called to learn in this setting. They are not called to teach. That seems to be the simple and clear understanding of the passage. God has called men to pastor and teach the church. Authority for this does not mean superiority. It simply means that that's what God has designed for the role of leadership in the church. The, the pastor-teacher of the church is responsible for the primary biblical and doctrinal teaching 
to the church, to the body. It's not the exclusive ministry going on in the church, but it has a specific place. It says in Ephesians that Jesus has given gifts to men, and he talks about apostles, prophets, past evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There are some that are called specifically to oversee the doctrinal integrity and teaching of God's Word at the congregational level where both men and women are present. That is to be reserved for men called as pastors. And women are asked to come and learn. Most of the men in church are called also, by the way, to come and learn. Not every man's a pastor. Not every man is called to teach the congregation. But in God's instruction here through the apostle, it seems that men have been given this responsibility. There is much ministry still available and open to women. Women ought not to feel excluded from ministry in any way. Women can teach. The Bible says in the book of Titus that the older women should teach the younger women. Women can teach other women. Women are, are certainly free to teach and minister to children. Paul says that Timothy was a product of the teaching from his mother and grandmother that taught him the Word of God. We know that Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team who ministered alongside Paul, had to pull Apollos aside. He was a, a teacher in Ephesus preaching the Word. Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside and taught him further instruction on the word and the gospel he was teaching. He needed some doctrinal correction. Guess what? There was a woman there helping correct and teach. We know that there can be even, I believe, limited teaching that women can do with men present so long as it is under the pastoral authority, the male pastoral authority that God has established in the church. I don't personally believe that women are prohibited to teach anything if a man is present. I just think that women, if they're, if they're given that type of opportunity, maybe it's a testimony. Maybe they're teaching on a, on a missionary trip and they have experience. Maybe it's a children's ministry where men and women are going to be teaching, but we want the, the women of experience to teach and give instruction. All of this is, is appropriate. We know that women can, I believe that women can lead, minist uh, lead ministries in the church. We see that Paul had many prominent women that he mentions in his letters, women that helped him defend the gospel. Jesus, a number of significant women in his ministry, supporting his ministry, helping him in ministry. The first appearance after resurrection was to a woman. He sent her to announce his resurrection to the disciples. And practically today, there is all type of ministry opportunity for women, whether it be hospitality, whether it be administration, organization, event planning, mission trips, retreats. Uh, listen, we have many uh, of our ministry functions here that are led and organized and administrated by women that have gifts and skills. Thank the Lord. So many leadership teaching opportunities. I believe that women can lead worship. Remind you of Ephesians chapter 5. This is written to all the church, 519. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
I believe that women can lead and, direct, and, and draw us into worship with their music. The Scripture does not pro- prohibit a woman from speaking to one another in ha- hymns and spiritual songs. And I believe outside the church, there are many opportunities that women can lead and serve that the Bible does not seem to prohibit at all. Let's think about just civil authorities, government positions. What does the Bible say about women serving in government? It's silent. It doesn't say women can or can't. It says that we, men and women, need to submit to those authorities in government because all authority has been established by God. If we have a woman president, governor, senator, we respect and and submit to that authority. Professional positions. Women can be CEOs of companies. They can be employers. I'm thinking of Lydia in Philippi. When Paul was preaching the gospel down by the riverside, there in Philippi, the first church plant as he came over to the European continent, it was Lydia, a seller of purple. Apparently an accomplished businesswoman, she was the first convert and then persuaded Paul and his team to come to her house to stay and to begin to teach and found the church. So, so much that God has made available to both men and women in service and in ministry. However, in this public worship life of the church, it seems clear that God has called men to teach and hold that pastoral leadership authority in the local church. It seems consistent with God's pattern throughout history. As we look through the Old Testament, when we think of the patriarchs, We think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't think of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. We think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when God delivered his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. He raised up Moses and Joshua, men to lead. The Levites, who became the priesthood, all were men of the tribe of Levi. We see the judges in the Old Testament. With rare exception, the judges are men. The kings of Israel and Judah are men. The prophets who wrote, the prophets that we read, all of the writing prophets are men. In the New Testament, Jesus stays up all night and prays and selects 12 men to be his apostles. And we see throughout the New Testament the writing of letters, the encouragement for pastors and leaders. It seems to be consistently directed to men. But that doesn't fit very well with today's time, does it? That doesn't really sit well with our ideas of modern society where, you know, men and women ought to have equal opportunity. And why not let women pastor and lead and direct as authority in the church? Because the Scripture seems to prohibit that. But we see the culture not comfortable with that. What do we see today? We see many women pastors. I have people ask me, you know, well, what do you think about women pastors? I think, well, you know, I don't, I don't see that as the right pattern in the Scripture. I know they're sincere. I'm not saying they're not gifted. They may even be, you know, you know wonderful leaders and speakers, but it doesn't seem to fit with the scriptural instruction for pastoral leadership in the church. There are many ways that people that don't like what this passage says try to reinterpret it. Some say simply this, Paul's just wrong. That's just Paul kind of 
stating his personal opinion to Timothy. It's not part of the inspired doctrine that's to be applied across all church life. Well, that's a dangerous slope to get on when you start deciding which parts of the Bible are inspired and which parts are not, which parts were just mistaken and which parts are truly inspired that we must follow. So I reject that claim. Some consider that maybe this is just cultural. This was a letter to, to deal with the local church at Ephesus, local things going on there, not to be applied to the church in general. These principles are not universal. They are simply specific to a local situation that Paul was writing to in Ephesus. And I could embrace that. I could take that and, and accept that, except of what Paul says next. Paul seems to anchor his instructions in the order of creation. Paul goes to Genesis to provide the support for his instruction. It doesn't seem anchored in culture. It seems anchored in God's created order. He says in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Paul quotes Genesis. You know, Jesus did the same thing. You remember Jesus had a very culturally charged question posed to him. When Jesus was ministering on the earth, there was a question about marriage and divorce. And there was a popular rabbinical teaching that was kind of going through the community at that time that said, you know what? Men can divorce their wives for just about any reason they want. If they find anything improper, anything they don't like, they're free to divorce them, even under the Levitical law. And so a question comes to Jesus, testing him. Hey, is, can a man divorce a wife just for any reason? And what does Jesus do? He quotes Genesis. He says, don't you remember what's written? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let not man separate. Jesus doesn't try to debate the culture. He quotes the intention from creation. Paul seems to be doing the same thing. He's saying, look at the record in Genesis, it's not just a historical record. It's, it's, to, it's instructional concerning God's intended design. God could have made Adam and Eve all together at the same time. He could have made them both from the dust of the earth at the same time, but he didn't. He made man first from the dust of the earth. He made woman from man, took a rib from man, and made him from man and gave him to man for man. It's not good that man be alone. I will make him a helper. I will make him a companion. I will make a suitable companion, a complementary fit for him, because he's not complete. It's not good that he's alone. God has two diverse individuals complementing one another as they come together as one. Paul seems to be pulling on this and saying, listen, the record of Genesis says something about God's plan concerning leadership. 
that God wants men to lead and be an authority in the local church. Now, we know this speaks also. He has words to say about family. In government, in business, lots of freedom. But in the church, this is what God is intending. This is what God gives through the apostle instruction. Now, he says that last thing, and, and probably the most difficult part of this. Um, well, actually, he says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. What does he mean by that? Is he saying that, well, listen, this is why men need to lead, because women are just gullible, and they can't be trusted with leadership. Look what happened in the garden. I don't think that's what he's saying, because to be honest with you, I think men can be just as gullible and mistake-driven as, as women. I don't, I think, you know, when it comes to gullibility and mistakes, uh, I think we're equal partners. I think what he's saying is this. Look what happened when the order of authority and leadership was taken out of balance. Look what happened to Eve on her own without the help and protection and counsel of her husband. The serpent came and tempted her, and she began to dialogue. She began to reason without really consulting her husband. What happens when God's plan and intended order of leadership is altered? Trouble. Not only did the woman fall into a bad decision, but then Adam, he allows his wife to lead him. He knows it's wrong. He's worse in my mind. He, he lets her lead him into sin, even though in his heart he knows it's going against God's word. What happens when the, the roles are reversed and the leadership is forfeited, sin and confusion? The scripture ultimately holds Adam accountable for the sin. It says in Romans 5 that it's through Adam's offense that sin entered the world. I think Paul is simply pointing out the dangers when we don't allow God's authority and leadership to set our example. That final verse, verse 15, and we'll close with this, and it's, it's a doozy. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? I'm not sure. <laughs> Let me give you some thoughts. Let me tell you what I'm, I think we'll all agree that it doesn't mean. We know that salvation, spiritual salvation, eternal life, comes through faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross, not through childbearing. So it doesn't mean that women can only be saved by having children. Boy, that would be bad for the men, and that would be bad for you know, a lot of the women. So that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that salvation comes through bearing of children. We also know that it, it can't mean that somehow all Christian women, women will be preserved from death. They'll be saved in childbearing. Well, that's not true either because we know in his, throughout history that some godly women, Christian women, die during childbirth. It's not a guarantee just being a Christian woman that you can have children without consequence. That, that's... Not for certain. So what can it mean? There's a couple ideas. I'll offer you two and the one I prefer. First is that maybe a reference to that to a reference to Christ. 
Because Christ is ultimately the one who would come through the woman, right? Back, way back in Genesis, God said to the serpent, through the woman, a seed will come. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. It may be that, that women are saved because women, it was through a woman that Christ, the Savior of us all, was born and birthed. It could be that. That's not a bad understanding, but I'll offer you this last one. And I, I prefer this one, and I think it fits better with the plain reading of the text, is that even though women were complicit in the fall, God has now entrusted women with this beautiful honor and grace of motherhood. As if to say, you know, God is still giving something very valuable that is unique to the woman. Only a woman can be a mother. And oh, there's something about being a mother, and let's be honest, everybody in here, there's something in our heart about our mother. There's this unique God-given grace that is exclusive and unique for women. Almost as if Paul is saying, listen, you're, that word saved can also be rendered preserved. As if, as if to say, women, don't, don't worry. You know, God's using men to lead the church, but God has blessed you with something that only you can know and enjoy. And it's a special call indeed, in general. Now, obviously, not all women have children. This is not specific to what, as woman by woman, but rather it's talking generally this unique gift and role that is reserved for women. There is a preservation. There is a blessing. God is looking out for you. God loves you. God loves us all. And what God has planned, what God has purposed, unique to each of us. Listen, it's not just gender. The Bible speaks quite a bit about the, what's called the body of Christ. Not everybody's a hand, right? Not everybody's a foot. Not everybody's an ear or an eye. But all have equal value in the function of the body to be healthy. You see, God brings diversity. God brings complementary gifts and roles and genders together to express the fullness of his image, the fullness of his purpose, the beauty of what he has designed. We ought not to think of this in a negative light just because the culture wants to frown on anything that doesn't, doesn't follow its definition of equality. As, as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out for you? right? Let's look at the culture. Let's look at the society. Oh, the wisdom of the age. How's that working out? Do we see blessing? Do we see family? Do we see love? Do we really see the things that, that God offers us in His family? I think the world is lost. I think the world is confused and blind and being misdirected by the devil. But I think the church the church is the support and pillar of truth, that we can find what God has intended, and may we always be able to find it here. And we cannot succumb to the pressure of the culture, whatever that may be. We cannot give way to the wisdom of the age. We must hold fast to the wisdom of God's Word. I'll close with two passages today. You know them. But I just want to remind you, 
Jeremiah chapter 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Listen, this is what God thinks. He is thinking thoughts of peace and not of evil. You don't have to be afraid of God's plan, God's purpose, God's wisdom, God's ways, because they're all for blessing to give a future and a hope. Finally, we'll close with this, Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship, the Greek word poema, it speaks of a masterpiece. It speaks of a, a work of art created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's got a plan. He's got a plan for his church. He's got a plan for his people. He has a plan for you. You are created in Christ for good works, prepared before you arrived, before you came to this planet, God saw you, he knew you, and he has good things planned and destined for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today's passage as challenging and as, Lord, just to be honest, culturally controversial as it seems. We are trusting your word and your wisdom. We believe that you are the light. Your word is the light to our path. You are the lamp for our life. And so, Lord, we, we look to line up with what we discern from your passages. Lord, we're trying to be honest with these things. We're trying to be sincere. We're not trying to twist or force or, or make this go to some way of our preference. Lord, we're really interested in hearing from you and obeying you. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us as a church, even in this generation, even in this time, that you will help us to live godly lives, men with godly hands, women with godly hearts and good works, a church under your order and your spirit, that we might thrive as believers in our families, in our lives, and that we may be a witness in our generation. As our heads are bowed and we close today, just before we sing a song of worship, I want to give opportunity, if you're here today and you, you need to respond to the Lord. It may be that God has spoken to you very specifically today, and, and you just want to respond and acknowledge that. We said something to men today. It may be that there are men here today that you're not living a godly life. You know the Lord, but you're not walking in the godly leadership he's called you to. You, you know it, and you want to say, Lord, I want to submit to that. I want to, I want to step up. Young, old, whatever your case, young, young men, old men, that you want, you want to respond to the Lord. Maybe you're here today as a young man or an older man, and you don't even know the Lord. But he's speaking to you, and you know that I've got, I need Jesus. I need mercy. I need his forgiveness so that I can live the life he's calling me to. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're here today as a woman, and you're feeling, you know what? I've been fighting for the authority too long. 
I've been trying to run my house. I've been trying to run my husband. I've been trying to run the church. I, I just am not been willing to comply with God's set order for me. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're, you've got too much attention on the outer woman, the outer appearance, and not enough focus on the inward beauty of the heart. Maybe you're just here today and you need Jesus. And you know that it starts with Him through faith in what He's done for you at the cross. Men and women, young and old, if you're here today and you need to respond to the Lord, I simply want to pray for you. And I'm going to ask you right now just to raise your hand. Let me see you. And I'm going to pray. God bless you. There, young woman in the middle, over on my left. God bless you. Amen, sir, there on the aisle. The very back, God bless you. Very, very back. Lord bless you. I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord. Not of evil, but of peace. To give you a future and a hope. Anyone else? Many have responded. Any others here just before we pray? Raise your hand high. Let me see you and we'll pray. So, Lord, for these hearts responding to your word today, I pray that you would meet them. Meet them with your love and with your grace. God, your intentions for us are good. Your plans for us are the best. You love us so. And I pray for each heart responding today that they would know that it's your love that they can trust, that they can surrender their will, their plan, their, their, their own way. They can surrender that to you knowing that you love them and that your plan and purpose for them will be good, evidenced by the fact that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. I pray that their hearts would rise up in faith and simply say, Jesus, forgive me. I believe you died on that cross for me, and I want you in my life, and I want my life in your hands. And I want to walk in step with you, your plan, your call, your purpose, your future and hope. I surrender that to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 